In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful, and may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and progeny. The topic that we were discussing and that we wanted to delve a little bit more deeply into is the topic of the problem of evil of the world. And we had provided a number of let's say, more simplistic solutions until now, and now we wanted to uh, look at maybe some of the explanations in a little bit more in-depth manner. And to do that, we said that we're going to look at a different way of answering the problem of evil in the world. We spent a little bit of time before explaining the what we call the relative evil, so there are no absolute evils that doesn't exist. And we said this proof is usually used by people who want to rely more just on reason, purely reason. And then we said, let's try to look at it from a different angle and go into a little bit more detail. Because the truth is that it may not be completely convincing just to say there is no real evil in the world, it's all absolute. Like the problem that really comes up when we try to explain the problem of evil in the world in this manner by saying that everything is just a relative evil, not an absolute evil, is we keep wondering at the end, but why? So why did God create the world in this way where there has to be relative evil? The why is never answered. We're just basically given the, the answer that this is just the way it is and the world has evils, but they're not real evils. They're kind of depending on your perspective. And Okay, but from my perspective, they are still problematic and evil. So I can take a, a more philosophical position and say, okay, I understand that they're not real evils, but that doesn't really give me the, the convincing answer of why did God create the world in this way? Couldn't he have created the world in a different way? And that's really why we're trying to do everything we're doing right now, to give that second answer. But the second answer requires that we rely a little bit more on uh, things that we take from scriptures. We cannot just rely on our mind to try to guess why God created the world the way he did. Uh, once we see what the scripture says, we're kind of guided, and then we have to make sure that nothing that we find in the scriptures is contradicting our logic and our mind. This is where the two meet finally. So we created the rational explanation, now we're going to see what the scripture says. And that's why we said that we're going to give them as though they are rules for now, because we don't really have time to go through each one of these rules to establish it in depth from the scripture, to show exactly all the verses of the Holy Quran and all the narrations and explain them one by one to explain why these have become rules that are going to allow us to answer the question ultimately. So we gave them as rules, we just call them rules for now, and we gave a couple of examples from this scripture, from the Holy Quran mostly, for each one of them, just to show what it is. And then inshallah, at the end of this, which we will not do today because there's no one, so I'm going to finalize the topic today, and then the next time we meet, we're going to give the categories of all the evils, and basically anything that you could think of should land based on the rules that we have given, and those rules should be well accepted by anyone who accepts the scripture or accepts the foundation that lead to the scripture. Then we have the answer of why the world is the way it is, including all the evils that are in it. So we said first uh, that before getting into this, there are three things that we have to make sure are well understood before getting into the topic in depth. The first thing is we have to establish first that there is a cre creator to the world. If you want to start this discussion with someone and they don't even believe in the existence of God, then you cannot go, Salaam alaikum wa rahmatullah. Okay, so we said there's three points that we have to believe 
uh, in or make sure that we've resolved before we get into the topic with anyone, including ourselves. The first one is that the world has a creator. If I don't believe that there is a God, I should not be wondering about the problem of evil in the world. I don't believe that there is a God. I just believe that the world is just the way it is without a creator. I should not be wondering, so why is there evil in the world? The world is the way it is. It's all matter and material interactions and there's nothing more to it. So that's the first principle. The second principle is, and this is something that we talked about in the past, we don't want to spend too much time on, but we said that there was, at some point, there are some scholars who said that the human mind is not capable of recognizing good and evil on its own. So if someone believes, one, if someone does not believe that there is a God, then we should right away stop discussing. We have to establish that there is a God first before the problem makes sense. Otherwise, the problem doesn't even make sense. There is no problem of evil in the world if you don't believe in a God. Two, once you believe in God, we have to be discussing this issue with someone who actually believes that the human mind is capable of recognizing good and evil. If someone says, there might be something called good and evil, but our mind is never going to be able on its own to say this is good and this is evil, then there's no point discussing the problem of evil in the world. We have to establish that first. And the last one is, we have to be discussing it with someone who believes in freedom of will. They have to believe that human beings have a free will, they are actually capable of choosing their actions, and that they are therefore accountable for the actions that they do. Otherwise, let's not discuss the problem of evil in the world. If human beings, everything is predetermined in their actions, they're not really freely choosing which action to do, which action not to do, there's no point in discussing the problem of evil in the world. So with those out of the way, we said here are the rules. Rule number one, God does not do any moral wrong. And so now you remember, I'm not going to repeat the difference between, we said the shurur, the problem of shurur, Shurur is really two types of evil. One type is something that is a moral wrong. So something that is wrong in itself. That's one type of evil. The other type of evil is something that is harmful. Okay, so sometimes when something is just harmful, something hurts you, you call it an evil. But it may not be an evil. So we have to say, what, what do you mean by evil? So generally speaking, when people say evil, they mean both of these. Something that is wrong in itself, regardless of whether it's harmful or not. That's one. And two, something that is harmful, regardless of whether it is wrong in itself or not. Okay, so these are the two definitions. So with that, we said first, and this is something we've explained in the past, belief in a creator means you cannot think that that creator, that God, because that God is the necessary being, that necessary being cannot be a being that does moral wrong. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. It cannot be a being that does moral wrong. And we gave the reasons, we gave the explanations of why this cannot be. We said that what makes you or any actor, what makes an agent do a moral wrong, behave in a moral way, morally wrong way, there has to be a driver. There has to be a reason, an incentive. So in human beings, it's easy. We have forces. There are things that are pleasurable to us. There are things that are harmful to us. This is what makes us want to do something and not want to do something. But if you are the necessary being, which we talked about, then what would make you want to do that moral wrong? And we gave the four possibilities or three possibilities. We said either you don't know, either you know but you have no power, you can't, or you know... And you have the power, but you don't feel like it. Okay, so that, the first one falls under uh, knowledge. The second one falls under power. The third one falls under will and wisdom. And we said all of those do not apply in the case of a necessary being. There's nothing that would make them act in that way. That was one. And two, we said because of this is an absolute ownership, and we're gonna, not going to spend a lot of time on it, but I prefer to give you the whole thing. Okay, we said that there is no entity that is created by a creator and that entity has a right over its creator. In our case, we don't really create things out of thin air. Okay, when we own something, our ownership is always relative. It's something that I can sell. Someone can come and use more force and take it, take it from me. 
This is my ownership over things. It's not a true ownership. I don't really own it. I own it only because it's been given to me and it's by convention or it's by law or it's by force. But all of that can change. The ownership of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is absolute because He creates. Just like the example of the snowman in Sayyid Hassan's head. He created that snowman. Okay, so you own that thing that you create a lot more completely than let's say I can own, you know, this pillow for instance. Okay, the third rule. The third rule is that when someone performs an act, they are responsible for that act and the consequences of that act. And if someone allows someone else to perform an act, then we have to see whether that second someone, what they were given. Were they just given the tools? Were they given the power? Were they forced? Were they ordered to perform the act? Or were they just given the things that allow them to perform the act? And at the end, if they had the freedom of will to choose their act, that second person, then they are responsible for their act. We don't make the person who gave them the tools and uh, as though they are the fully responsible entity for whatever act they commit. The fourth rule was that we said there is a clear distinction between something that is wrong and something that is harmful. Sometimes something is both, but sometimes it's only one or the other. Sometimes some, the thing may only be wrong. For instance, someone who has a philosophical mind will say, if I waste my time, that is morally wrong. But no one's getting hurt. Okay? A case can be made that it's not really harmful. You don't have anything to do and you decide just to waste your time. So it's not really harmful. Or something may be harmful, but it's not morally wrong. It's in fact morally right. Someone does something, a crime, an injustice, an oppression against someone else, so they are harmed through punishment, for instance. So it's a harm, but it's a harm that... It is a harm, but no one can say that that harm is morally wrong. That's why we try to distinguish clearly between a moral wrong and a harmful, something that is harmful, a harmful act. And when we say evil, it may be both, but we need to distinguish between them. <clears throat> and then the next rules. Harm can be considered an appropriate form of punishment, especially when it is to reestablish an injustice into a justice, for instance. Reparation or something of that sort, okay? So someone, there's an oppression, an act of injustice committed against them, and you use harm to reestablish that justice. There's nothing wrong with that in itself. If someone uh, creates a situation to restore justice, that act in itself, regardless of how it's done, the act itself is considered a good thing. So using harm cannot be considered evil or bad, one, if it's to recreate justice. Two, recreating justice in itself, that is a good. That's something that's good. And that's why every population in the world, every human being who understands moral thinking is always going to lean towards justice, re-establishing justice. And they will recognize quickly when injustice is committed. And when people don't, you just have, let's say they have a lack of maturity for whatever reason, lack of experience, they don't have very strong abstract thinking, then bring it back to them. Put them in a situation where the injustice is committed against them, and then suddenly they'll revolt against it and they'll want to reestablish justice. Not because they want to take over something that's not theirs. They'll, they'll want to reestablish justice. They'll say, for instance, this is mine, or I have a right over this, or you, know, you have no right to take it. And they will use whatever they can to reestablish that justice. And this is just a general principle for all human beings. <clears throat> we also said, this one requires a little bit more explaining, and we're not going to spend too much time on it, but the application will be clear. When someone goes out of their way, in other words, they are being harmed, for the good of someone else, it would be really good to reward them for that harm, for that sacrifice that they have made. Right? That would be good. In an ideal situation, someone goes out of their way, someone is harmed, let's say intentionally, so you decide to do something 
but that something that you do is harmful to you. You're sacrificing money, you're sacrificing time, you're doing something. So on your, on your side, you're being harmed, and on the other side, they're benefiting. So it would be really good for this person who is sacrificing, who is giving for the good of others, to receive something as a reward in return for this. Right? Okay. And then we said the last two rules. Rule number eight and nine. Some benefits, some goods, are only accessible through harm. I can only reach certain goods, and you know, a case could be made that in our world, any true, real good can only be reached through harm. Okay, that's the nature of the world we live in. That's one. And two, tests and tribulations, challenges, they are good, and by definition, they force you to go through harm. Okay? With these rules, you're supposed to be able to solve any problem of evil in the world. And we haven't applied them yet, right? So what did we do next? We spent a little bit of time explaining this issue of tribulation and tests in the world. And we gave a few points and we said, if we spend enough time understanding the philosophy of testing in, the, in this world, we understand what the Qur'an says about the reason why we are created, what are we tested in, what is the nature of the tests, and we're going to go through them very, very quickly, then that solves a lot of the issues related to the problem of evil in the world, and it solves a whole lot of other issues. That's why we decided we're going to spend a full lecture on it, because it's going to be useful in all sorts of other ways later, and just to keep in mind. Okay, but related specifically to the problem of evil in the world, we said, first of all, why are we created? And the solution that we got from the Qur'an is that we were created to be tested. That's the short answer. And we went through the verses of the Qur'an that clearly state this. We created you to test you. Did human beings think that we're just going to create them and they're going to say we have believed when they have not been tested? Okay, so we went through a number of verses that, through that. The second thing is the importance of the freedom of choice. And this requires, it's a subtle point. Okay, there's a nuance here. It's not just saying that we have a freedom of choice. We're saying that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala intentionally created the world and human beings in a way where they can choose freely to do whatever they want. And that is the test. To say that we have been created to be tested means that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has to really, truly give us the ability to do all the evil we want to do and all the good we want to do. And putting restrictions there means that that freedom is limited. So if someone comes and says, but, and they want to argue, if their argument limits that freedom, they have missed the point. They have missed the point of the test. They have not really understood that the test is, here's a whole lot of freedom of choice, and let's see what you're going to do with it. And I'm going to make you go through situations in life. The majority of people think that the test is only, and we're going to spend a bit of time at the end for that, the test is only in things that are difficult. So they think, you know, once in a blue moon, once every five years, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sends me a test. No. The test is ongoing 24-7, every single day of your life, until you die. From the moment you're mature and responsible till the moment you die, you're undergoing a test, or a series of tests. So when we say that, you are given freedom. That freedom is how are you choosing to spend every moment you have given the context you're in. That context is what we refer to as the test. It's always around you. And what you're choosing to do or not to do, to act or not to act, that's your freedom. And that is the test. That is you going through the test. So it's not one test or two or ten. It's ongoing all the time. Okay, so that was the problem of the of the principle of it's not the problem the principle of the freedom, and how it's associated directly with testing and tribulation. The third point that we talked about was, what are we tested in? So ultimately, the test 
if in, if we can say in one thing, what is it? If we can re- summarize, reduce, simplify everything that is that we're tested in, what does it amount to? It amounts to worship. So the notion of worship in a lot of people's minds, the notion of worship is, I pray, I fast, right? I do rituals, and these rituals are my worship. If we understand what we're saying right now, if the test of our being, of our, of our existence is to be tested, and to be tested means that we have a freedom of choice, and the ultimate test is always about being in a state of worship, then worship cannot mean just praying and fasting. It means every single second of your life, are you in a state, are you in a relationship of worship with God? Do you remember that you are a servant to your Creator or not? And if you do things that contradict that, then you're not in a state of worship. And if you do things that reinforce that, then you are in a state of worship. So if I'm learning anything, and that learning makes me a better servant, then I'm in a state of worship. If I'm sleeping, if I'm eating, if I'm working out, if I'm having fun but in a way that is legitimate, that is valid, that is desirable from my Creator, then I'm in a state of worship. And of course, one state of worship can be a lot better than another state. One, one type of worship, one kind of worship, can be a lot stronger in degree and intensity than another. Right? But you're still in a... You can only be in a... It's like a binary system. You're either in a state of worship, one or zero. You're either in a state of worship or you're not. And this is why we have the model that we have, which is either you go to heaven or hell. There's nothing in between. Every moment that you're spending, you're making a step. Every breath you're taking is a step. So is it a step towards heaven or hell? You're choosing. That's a freedom. And that step, if it's towards this, then it wasn't an act of worship. It was in a state of worship. And that's the real definition when we say, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, I only created human beings and jinn so that they worship me. So everything has to fall under worship. So ultimately, why are we created? We are created to be in a state of worship. But worship is more than just the rituals. It's a state. It's everything you know. It's how you handle yourself. It's your state of being. Okay? I'm going really fast. This is very very deep stuff, but I think it's we've covered it enough a few times already. The next point is when we said that you're, the point is to be tested. And to be tested means that you have a freedom to choose. Right? That's two. The third point was you are choosing to be in a state of worship. Now let's look at real life. Real life is what? Is everything you go through. Everything you have access to. Everything that you have been given or not given. So your body, your health, your faculties, your money, your family. And it works at an individual level. So you look at it as just me. And what I have and what I don't have. And what harms me and what doesn't harm me. And you can even look at it as society. You can look at it as, you know, the people living in, let's say, Ethiopia have a completely different world collectively as a nation or as a community or as a culture than the people living in Canada. Or the people who lived 5,000 years ago had a completely different set of skills and set of conditions and circumstances than what we have 3,000 years later. Okay, so there is an individual dimension and then there is a collective dimension. Regardless of what we're looking at, when we say test, we mean in everything. And the Qur'an talks about this, and we read verses of the Qur'an. When it says, Right? We're going to test you in everything. And the majority of the verses of the Qur'an, they insist on what? They insist on the things that all human beings would agree. Oh, these are difficult. These are things that I'm deprived of having. I want to have them and I can't have them. So clearly it's a test. That's the test. I want to have money and I can't. I want to have health and I can't. I want to have 
you know, more people because it gives me a bigger army that are better defend myself, whatever. These are the clear def definitions that everybody agrees on are the tests. But then the Quran flips it and says, and there's also the tests on the opposite side, which are the good things. And the good things are also tests. And we have that in multiple verses of the Quran, right? We read the verses from Surah Al-Fajr, for instance, where clearly Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says when the human being, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala honors, the human being feels he's being honored and he's receiving a lot of blessings, that's a test. But the human being is, oh no, things are good. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is honoring me right now. I'm, I'm, no, no, it's a test. It's an equal test as the next verse, which when it says, Now Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is holding back some sustenance, holding back money, holding back food, holding back. Oh, now the, the human being says, Ahanan. Now I'm being humiliated. I'm being condescended by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. No. Both of them are tests. But you have to keep your eyes on the ball. You have to remember that whatever comes your way, and the, we read verses, uh, the Holy Quran itself says, that is so that you do not become proud of what we have given you. And you do not become at a, you know, lost or you know, depressed or sad of things that have, been, have not come your way. Right? Right? So we talked about all of that, which in short, we're basically saying clearly and obviously the things that are difficulties, the things that are challenges, the things that are human beings are looking to get, these are clearly tests. But the things that are good and that are pleasurable and that are wanted and desirable for us, they're also tests. And again and again, the Quran talks about this, including when for instance, Prophet Sulaiman who received probably more bounties and goods and blessings and you know, abilities and, than anyone we could think of. And that's exactly what he, he asked God for. He, he asked Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to give him a kingdom that he would never give to anyone else. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, so we made you know, the, the beasts and the birds and the jinn, all of them under his servitude. Okay, so that was his kingdom. And then he says at some point, Sulaiman salam, when we are told about the story and everything that he can do and everything he can hear, and he understands the ants when they talk, and he says all of this is because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given me all of this so that he sees, am I going to be to remain in a state of gratefulness? Ashkuru am akfur? Or do I become ungrateful? It's akfur here, kufr can have different meanings. One of the meanings of kufr is simply being ungrateful. And ungrateful is not just with words, right? It's with your actions. How are you, how are you using the blessings that you are receiving? If you're using it in the right way, you're being grateful. And that's a whole topic, inshallah, one day we'll talk about it. The gratefulness. What does, how does the Qur'an use gratefulness? It's not words. It's not just saying thank. Uh, shukr in the Qur'an is not just saying thank you. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala just thank you. That, that is okay. That, that's desirable and good. But it's with actions. And the Quran states that again and again. Anyways. So the test, the tribulation, the difficulties, the challenges, they are in everything. Anything and everything that you could think of that is being used as a test for you. The purpose from the test, as we said, the purpose from all of this and this is where we made the distinction between just getting something, so something that is beneficial, let's say a benefit. The difference between that and a reward. And we said the point of all of this, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, is to get a reward. And we said a reward is not just getting something good, it's getting something good in return for an effort, in return for a struggle in return for a sacrifice. And all human beings understand this. And we gave multiple examples. We said, for instance, you can't just give a medal to someone without having them go through the race and beating others. Otherwise, everybody would say, like, this is an act of foolishness. You don't give a prize without any return, right? And the more struggle, the more difficulty the person went through, the more they sacrificed, 
the more prestige there is to that prize, to that reward. Okay, and the reward may be material or it may not be. And in the majority of cases, it's not material. There is a material component to it, but there's a lot of social prestige that is not material, that human beings give a lot of importance to. Right? When we say someone is a doctor, for instance, so they've received a reward. That title is a reward. It's a social reward. And the greatness of that social reward, the degree of that social reward in society is equivalent to what we think that person had to go through to reach that level of expertise in their field. This is the idea of reward. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not say, I just want to give you something good, something desirable, something beneficial. He says, I want to give you a reward which means that you have to go through a difficulty, you have to go through a sacrifice to earn that right. Without going through it and receiving it, that would be called, considered an act of foolishness. That I give you something beneficial with nothing in return. Why? You haven't earned it. So if we're acting, the act is based on wisdom, then you have to have done something in return for getting that reward. And I think that's where we stopped last time. <clears throat> so now I just wanted to finish this topic. The next point was that part of the testing, part of the tribulation, part of the difficulties of this world is that there is difference. Two verses quickly to explain that point. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. First verse says, وَهُوَ الَّذِي جَعَلَكُمْ خَلَائِفَ الْأَرْضِ وَرَفَعَ بَعْضَكُمْ فَوْقَ بَعْضٍ دَرَجَاتٍ لِيَبْلُوَكُمْ فِي مَا آتَاكُمْ إِنَّ رَبَّكَ سَرِيعُ الْعِقَابُ وَإِنَّهُ لَغَفُورٌ رَحِيمٌ It is He who has made you successors on the earth. You succeed each other in taking over possession and management of the earth. And, and this is the key, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, He made you successors and... On top of it, and he raised some of you in rank over others. So that he may test you in respect to what he has given you. So that if I look around and I see someone has been raised in rank, in whatever rank, I have to understand that this is part of the test too. I cannot lose sight of the fact that Everything I'm in, including the fact that there are ranks in this world. This world is created in a way where no two things are equal. There is better and worse in everything. Someone has more money, someone has more knowledge, someone has more prestige, someone has more honor, someone has... Right? And some people have more of all of it, and some people have less in all of it, and so on and so forth. This is all part of the test too. And this becomes a very tricky point because we live in a world, and this is a topic for another day, but we live in a world now where everybody is constantly bombarding you with the idea that if you do, you get exactly the success that is equivalent to the struggle that you put in. That's not very Islamic. Your job is to do. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that there are material conditions that if they are met you should get a certain result. But on top of all of that, there's also what God decides you're going to get and you're not going to get. And so some two people are going to put in the same exact amount of work and one person will make $10,000 in profit and the second person is going to make a million dollars in profit. And it's not because this person is smarter. And it's not because this person is lazier. It has nothing to do with that. Today's world, you might say, it's luck, it's the market, it's the unpredictables, it's the... No, bottom line is it's God. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is testing this person with this and testing that person with that. Your job is to do. Your job is to act. What you get at the end, that's not really entirely up to you. If you don't do anything, you don't get anything. And the more you do, logically, the more you should get. But that's it. We can't say more than that. How much will you actually get at the end? In what way will you get it? Who knows? 
Okay? And the reason why is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that. He says, that is the kind of world I created so that I test you through these different ranks. I want to put some of you above others and some of you below others. And if you understand enough about life and the way it works is usually the situation is flipped over. And those who are on top become on bottom, at the bottom. And even this works at the level of individuals and it works at the level of nations too. Right? And even Musa salam in some verses, he tells Bani Israel, he tells them, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right now you're at the bottom. <laughs> you're below and you're enslaved by, by the Fara'in, by Fir'aun and his people. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala may flip over the equation and suddenly you're going to find yourselves as the ones who are ruling the land. And then he will see, yesterday, you know, not that long ago, you were the ones enslaved. And you saw what kind of oppression this can create. And you were, all the injustice that you're going through. So now God is going to put you behind the steering wheel. He's going to give the power to you. And now let's see how you're going to handle yourself. It's easy when you're not in that position to say, I would never do that. Of course I would be good and I would use the wealth for good. You're not in that situation. It's too cheap. Talk is too cheap. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala puts you in the real situation. He flips it and then he gives it to you. Says, okay, you said that you would be good. You said that you would use it for the good. It's not for personal gain. You're not going to commit injustice and oppression against others. Let's see. You said what you had to say. Now let's put it to the test. Okay? So that's one. And again, about the same topic of these differences between human beings in the world. The second verse is very important too. In Arabic, أَهُمْ يَقْسِمُونَ رَحْمَةَ رَبِّكَ نَحْنُ قَسَمْنَا بَيْنَهُمْ مَعِيشَتَهُمْ فِي الْحَيَاةِ الدُّنْيَا وَرَفَعْنَا بَعْضَهُمْ فَوْقَ بَعْضٍ دَرَجَاتٍ لِيَتَّخِذَ بَعْضَهُمْ بَعْضًا سُخْرِيَّةٍ وَرَحْمَةُ رَبِّكَ خَيْرٌ مِمَّا يَجْمَعُونَ It is they, is it they? Is it they who divide or who dispense the mercy of your Lord? It is we who have dispensed among them their livelihood in the present life and raised some of them above others. Why? We have raised some of them above others in rank so that they may take each other into service. That's probably the best kind of interpretation we can give, translation we can give. Okay, and your Lord's mercy is better than what they amass. There's a key there. So let's take that verse one part at a time. First part, is it they who dispense the mercy of your Lord? So obviously human beings are now associated everything good that comes to them as being mercy from Allah. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells them, do you think you're the ones who decide who get what? Because different human beings have different criteria. The Arabs who lived at the time of the Prophet, for instance, they would consider someone who has more sons and who has more money as being more honored by God. Okay? And if you're not that, if you don't have a lot of sons or you don't have a lot of money, then you are not as honored by God as someone else. And sometimes they took that into the next world too. They say if someone has been honored with this in this world, it means that honor will stay with them in the next world. Those were their old beliefs that Islam came and tried to, to correct. Okay? So the verse starts by saying, is it they who dispense, يقسمون, you know, يقسمون, so they, they, they give to each a part, right? Is it they who dispense the mercy of your Lord? No. So that's clearly no. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, نَحْنُ قَسَمْنَا بَيْنَهُمْ It is we who have dispensed among them their livelihood in the present life. So, so each of them is getting something. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala decided what your livelihood is going to be, what my livelihood is going to be, and so on and so forth. Your rizq, your sustenance for this world in the present life. And raised some of them above others in rank. So again, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, so if we take that part that we just read, it is we who, and raised, so it is we who have raised some of them over others in rank. So this is part of the test. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives an explanation of this here. A different one than he gave in the other verse. This, in this one, he there's a different twist to it. Now he's talking about the manner in which things work in this world. So in Arabic it says, 
ليتخذ the reason why these are there are different ranks ليتخذ بعضهم بعضا سخرية which is very different than saying سخريه سخريه would it would mean so that they mock each other but that's not what the verse says سخريه is تسخير which is something used in the service of something else وسخر لكم as the Quran says سخر لكم الليل والنهار وسخر لكم الشمس والقمر وسخر لكم الأنهار right the Quran says we have put all of these at your disposal all of these to serve you the night and day so that you may know the uh, count calendars and know the time and so on and so forth Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says all of these are at your service so the verse is using the same terminology here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says we made them of different ranks people some of them above others so that they may be at the disposal of each other as a human being you are going to need a lot of other people and if if we are all equal in everything, then no one needs anyone else for anything. It doesn't matter, you know, how, I don't know, let's say you're a professor in history, and you're the best in your field in the whole world. If the garage door of your house breaks down, you have to call the guy who knows about garage doors a lot more than you, right? And the person who has money needs someone else. And the person who doesn't have money needs someone else. And the person who has knowledge in a field needs someone else. And the person who doesn't have knowledge... Okay, this is the way human beings work as a society. For a society to function, people have different needs and they are at different levels. So that you all, because you need each other, you use each other in this way. Right? So one person is going to be used for their ability to... I don't know, work with wood. And someone else is going to be used for their ability to work with metal. And someone else is going to be used because of what they know in religion. And someone else because of how they can heal someone else's disease. And so on and so forth. Right? So this is how human beings use each other. For some reason, my computer decided to not be used anymore. Okay. So, this is the part of the verse that is directly talking about how people are of a different rank, of a different ability, so that difference, the difference is not just because. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created that difference as part of the test. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives us the key. This is why I said at the end of this verse, there is kind of the, the wisdom or the mystery or the key behind all of this is explained at the end of this verse. It says, وَرَحْمَةُ رَبِّكَ خَيْرٌ مِمَّا يَجْمَعُونَ So, while human beings seem to be clicked on the wrong place. While human beings seem to be all in competition over all these goods in the world, right? So that's why the Qur'an is addressing this issue because people are always in constant competition and everybody wants more, 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 Right? So the Qur'an first establishes that the more is not because of some intrinsic merit that someone has. It's not because you really internally, as a, as a person, you're a lot better than someone else that you have more money or that you have more. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave you that and decided to not give it to the other person. And tomorrow the situation could be flipped over. And both are part of the test. You're being tested with this, they're being tested with that. And there's a social reason for this. So there's a wisdom behind it. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created the world so that society works based on this principle. So that's one, one explanation. And then the verse adds, وَرَحْمَةُ رَبِّكَ خَيْرٌ مِمَّا يَجْمَعُونَ So, and beyond all of this explanation, the real answer to all of these differences in rank, in ability, in money, and, 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 is that you should keep your eyes on the ball, as we said. Which is what? Which is, you have been created to get to the mercy. This is the reward 
that we talked about. And this term of rahmah came back again and again, although we didn't highlight it too much. The highlight is now. The punchline is, and all of this, in reality, is kind of distractions. What's better than amassing more money, or having a higher rank, or competing for all of these things, is what? Is the mercy of your Lord, which is the reason why you were created. But that's a reward. The mercy is a reward, which means what? Which means you have to struggle towards it. But if you keep that in mind, then you don't care about the rank. You don't, you're not duped, you're not tricked, you're not distracted by these secondary things. Yes, we have created you of different ranks. And the reason in this world is so that human society functions, so that you use each other and can live as a society. But all of that is a distraction. The point, if you want to keep your eyes on the ball, on the real purpose behind it is what? It's so that you reach the divine mercy. It's not to get tricked and distracted by what's going on in this world. Okay. So with this, I think we have completed what we wanted to say about this topic of tribulations and tests and difficulties. Four very quick points. The first one is, do not forget that the tests and tribulations and challenges can be both in things that we consider good and we consider bad. The test is ongoing all the time in everything. That's one point. Second point, there are no exceptions on about who goes through the tests. The test is for everybody. The good and the bad. The strong and the weak. If you are a human being, you are going through the test. So you cannot say, well, I'm a good person. Not just you. You cannot say, oh, so-and-so is an amazing scholar. They're not going to be tested. Not even scholars. You cannot say, so-and-so is a great prophet or a great imam. They're not going to be tested. Everybody is tested. That's why they exist in this world. Regardless of who they are, everybody is going through the test. And their merit is what they're doing as they're going through the test. The more they do, the greater they are. You want to be great? Be great as you go through the test. That's it. There is no other secret. Okay? That's the second point. The third point. The third point is, while everybody is going through the test, and while the test is ongoing all the time, the Quran states again and again, that no one will ever be tested with anything more than they can handle. So while I am tested and an imam is tested, my test and the imam are definitely not going to be on the same level. Because I can't handle what an imam can handle. And that applies to everybody. So the test is ongoing all the time, your whole life and everything, the good, the bad, everything is a test. No matter who you are, but the test is customized to you, personalized to you and what you can handle. What does that mean? It means that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has, it's true that He's given you tough tests. But to someone else, those tough tests might be very easy. And to someone else, they, they might become unbearable. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows what you can handle. But if He gave you anything less than what you can handle to make it easier, let's say, that's the advantage you get, that it's easier for you. The truth is that it, it's preventing you from reaching the full potential. <coughs> so then you may go back to God and claim, like everybody does in the Quran, as we are told, you're going to go back and tell God, well, if you had put me in that situation like you put so-and-so, then you would have seen that I would have done a lot more. And so I would have deserved all of that amazing reward. But you didn't. So... So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, no, I will test you to the maximum of what I know you can handle. To give you your full chance of getting your full reward. So there's no excuse. The point of your creation is not to make it the easiest on you. The point of your creation is to give you the maximum reward you can get. So I have to, as we said, to get to the reward, I have to put you through the toughest test that you can handle. And that's it. And anything easier on you 
means that I'm preventing you from reaching your full reward. And then you will use it as an argument against God to say, and there are people who did that, they would tell Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, well, if you were, send, you were to send us a prophet, then you would see that we would not be like the previous nations. We would listen to those prophets and we would worship you. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, so I sent you a prophet. Were you not saying that not, lot, not that long ago? You were asking for a prophet, so I sent you a prophet. And the nations before used to say the same. And then every time I would send them a prophet that they did not desire, you would kill them. So there's no excuse. You have to be put to the test, but the test will always be only to what you can handle, not more. And finally, the accountability is always there. And this is our final point. What does that mean? It means that it's not because you're going through a test. It's not because you're going through a punishment of something you've done, for instance, that now we say, oh, you're no longer accountable because that's just a reward of something. No, no, the accountability is always there. Whether it's in the most difficult time or the easiest time, you are responsible for yourself and your actions. If everything else we said is in place, including the fact that as difficult as it may seem on you, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows that you can handle this, you're always accountable. And that's what preserves the value of two people. Because it might look like it's unbearable, it might look like it's extremely difficult, but you put two people in the test and one of them is going to handle themselves differently than another. You can't consider both of them the same. One of them deserved it, earned it. And the other, we can't just say, but it was really difficult. Yeah, it was difficult, but they're not equal. And the only way to preserve that is to say they were both accountable. Of course there are loopholes, of course there are things that make it easier. But you make it easier, there's less reward. Right? Okay, so with that we have completed this topic of test and tribulation. And all that remains is that we apply the rules that we have presented and explained, I think, twice now in depth to all the evils that we could think of. And that's what we're going to do next time. And we're going to put everything into four or slash six categories. Okay, so we're going to create a, a little org chart and everything that we say should fall very neatly into one of the categories in a logical manner for all the evils that we could think of. And with that, inshallah, we completed today's lecture. Wa sallallahu ala Sayyidina Muhammadin wa ala alihi wa tayyibin al-tahirin. Allah.